Welcome to the Sustainable Nano Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Kraus. It's our first episode of 2019. Today, we've got a great interview for you with Dr. Mary Kirchhoff, who's Executive Vice President of Scientific Advancement at the American Chemical Society. Her career has included time as a faculty member at Trinity College in Washington, D.C., a visiting scientist at the Environmental Protection Agency, Assistant Director of the American Chemical Society Green Chemistry Institute, and too much else to list here. Dr. Kirchhoff visited the University of Minnesota campus last spring to give a seminar that was called Sustainability Through Green Chemistry. If you haven't heard the term green chemistry before, it's basically the idea of making the work of chemistry more environmentally sustainable. I can quote from Dr. Kirchhoff's writing here. She describes green chemistry as the design of chemical products and processes that reduce or eliminate the use and generation of hazardous substances. Anyway, she kindly agreed to squeeze a quick podcast interview into her schedule when she was on campus, and two of our Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology graduate students, Stephanie Mitchell and Peter Clement, volunteered to do the interview, though you'll hear I couldn't resist popping in with a couple of questions, too. So without further ado, here is our interview. Okay, just to start off, so we're going to ask you to introduce yourself and explain your current position for the listeners. Okay, so I'm Mary Kirchhoff. I'm the Executive Vice President for Scientific Advancement and Director of the ACS Green Chemistry Institute, and ACS is the American Chemical Society. Can you share how you entered the field of chemistry, starting with your education, and how that changed your trajectory for your career afterwards? Sure. So I actually fell in love with chemistry in high school. I had an awesome high school chemistry teacher, Sister Barbara Cowan. (laughs) And so she sort of inspired me to to go on into chemistry. I'm going to tell you I was not the most gifted student when it came to chemistry, however. And uh, halfway through organic chemistry... I was thinking I needed to become an English major. I was actually quite good in English. I wasn't quite so good at chemistry. But it just suddenly clicked and all made sense. And after that, I was was fine in terms of completing my undergraduate degree. Um, But I also got married, had four children, and then eventually went back for my PhD in organic chemistry with the intention of going into academia. And so I was fortunate to land a teaching position at Trinity College, which is a small Catholic women's college in Washington, D.C. While I was there, I took a sabbatical. Uh, I worked at the uh, U.S. Environmental Protection Agency with the Green Chemistry Program, and that's what ultimately led me then to move to the American Chemical Society, where I became the assistant director of the Green Chemistry Institute. Within ACS, um, I also had opportunities to move around, so I joined the education division, uh, became director of education, and then just last year moved to my new position with the Green Chemistry Institute and Scientific Advancement Division. Very cool. So when you bump into someone on the street and they don't know what green chemistry is, how do you explain to them what green chemistry is and why it matters? So I think the easiest way to explain it is you know, using chemistry to produce everything that we use. And I think that's one of the big challenges that a lot of people don't realize that from the toothpaste they mm-hmm. use to their cell phone, the car they drive, their clothing, all of that is a result of chemistry. So with green chemistry, we're really providing all of these materials, all of these consumer goods and products in a way that's better for human health and the environment. And who should be involved in the push for green chemistry? Is that mostly on the government shoulders, industry? How much impact do individuals have in this? Um, So individuals probably don't have a huge impact on green chemistry because we really are focusing on the chemistry. However, um, as consumers, you know, they can be looking for greener products, things that are produced in a way that, again, is more environmentally benign. Um, however, they do have to be careful of claims because there's 
a lot of what is referred to as greenwashing in terms of, 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 of products and processes. I think the, the responsibility really falls more on the chemists. It's really, to me, green chemistry is not a sub-discipline within chemistry. It's an approach to how all chemists should be uh, addressing their work, really thinking about, do I need to use this solvent? Um, is what I'm using hazardous? Is there a more benign replacement? Um, you know, what's going to happen at the end to the byproducts? Um, what's the disposal? Can they be recycled and reused? So that responsibility really falls on the chemists, but the implementation um, is at the industrial level. And so industry can play a critically important role by ensuring that green chemistry is something that they do pay attention to and are always looking for ways to um, improve how they produce these products. Speaking of, can you give an example of an industry that's really embraced green chemistry? A lot of the good examples for green chemistry are actually out of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, the pharmaceutical industry, just because of the nature of producing pharmaceuticals that are highly complex molecules, there are typically many steps involved, a lot of material, a lot of energy, and so you know, on a per kilogram or pound basis, the industry is producing a lot of waste relative to how much of the product that they're producing. And so they've really been looking very closely at ways that they can improve how they're producing these pharmaceuticals in a way that greatly reduces the amount of waste that they're producing, as well as looking for things like alternative solvents. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry has identified some, um, they've got uh, solvent selection guides where they basically use the basic stoplight system. Um, you know, what are the green solvents, what are the yellow solvents, and what are the red solvents? You know, the red ones you should avoid, the green ones you want to try to use, and the ones in the middle, you know, the yellow ones, a little bit of caution, there's concerns with them, but again, sometimes it doesn't really, um, uh, it may not work to use one of the greener solvents, and if the reaction's not going to work, then you're, you're not going to be able to make the pharmaceuticals. So guides like these are really helping to influence how industry is approaching the implementation of green chemistry. Can I back you up a little bit of for course. people who aren't familiar? Um, can you give an example of what a solvent would be in a chemical reaction and, and why we care if it's benign? or? Sure. Um, so solvents are uh, usually the... I never think about how they describe <laughs> solvents. Um, they're typically the liquid medium in which we run a reaction. Um, and the problem with organic solvents is many of them are volatile, so they can add to air pollution. Um, some of them are flammable, which presents a hazard in the lab. Why do we use organic solvents? Because they dissolve organic molecules, and the reaction's not going to take place unless you have everything dissolved. And uh, if we want to put it on a consumer level, think about um, <laughs> Kool-Aid. You've got to dissolve that solid Kool-Aid uh, and your sugar in water um, to drink it. You're not going to be ingesting the packet of dry Kool-Aid. That'd be pretty gross. Um, so that's where a solvent's really important, is you've got to mix things together. And so the same thing happens when you're trying to run a, a reaction in an organic solvent. You've got to mix them together. Uh, also helps to absorb heat during the reaction, but it rarely goes into the final product, and so that becomes a waste disposal problem. Kool-Aid is a great example, okay, and, yeah. and it's a good time to remind people, too, that organic in chemistry means something very different than organic in consumer products. Yes, organic in chemistry means it's carbon-based. <laughs> Not necessarily all natural. <laughs> Much more things are organic to a chemist than they are to a consumer. Uh, yes, I've... 
uh, frequently misinterpret that when I'm at the store. <laughs> oh, oh, in fact, uh, can I cite a sidebar? So um, I was at a hotel a few years ago, and I could have paid $5 for a bottle of organic water. You're kidding. I'm pretty sure there was no carbon in there. <laughs> I was astonished. I drank the tap water. <laughs> um, you also gave some really impressive examples in your talk about specific pharmaceutical compounds that mm-hmm. were drastically reduced in their like right. e-factor specifically. Right. Can you share about e-factor and give a couple of those specific examples that were really potent, I think? Sure. So for the e-factor, that's really looking at how much waste are you producing per amount of product you're producing. And it can be on a kilogram if you're using the metric system or pound basis. And so with pharmaceuticals, you can have e-factors well in excess of 100. So what that means is if you have an e-factor of 477, which was for one of the examples I gave in my talk yesterday, that means you're producing 477 kilograms of waste for every kilogram of product that you're producing. And so the pharmacy, you're basically paying for the material twice. You pay to buy your starting materials and then you pay to dispose of it at the end. And so that's lost money for the companies. And so the companies have really been looking at e-factors and ways in which they can adjust their manufacturing process to really reduce the amount of waste. So one of the examples was for the drug, uh, I think I may confuse my examples, but one of them I think it was a prepotent which is used to treat nausea and vomiting in patients who are undergoing chemotherapy. And uh, the pharmaceutical company was able to cut that e-factor from, I think it was 477 down to 66. That was a huge reduction. Some of the some of the drugs now have e-factors um, that are in the single digits. So there's been a tremendous effort on the part of many of the pharmaceutical companies to really reduce those e-factors. And that's good for us and good for them, right? So Absolutely. Good for the environment and good for their bottom line. It, yeah, that's right. Um, it's, you've got less waste being produced at the same time, as I mentioned yesterday in my talk, green is the color of chemistry and the color of money. And so when you're implementing these more efficient and effective processes, companies are going to be implementing green chemistry when they can see their the benefit to their bottom line. Sure. I want to go back to something you said earlier, which mm-hmm. is you don't view green chemistry as a sub-discipline of chemistry. Mm-hmm. You view it as an overarching thing. And mm-hmm. some people, and maybe myself included, sometimes think of green chemistry as a sub-discipline. Yes. And so in our center, we often make nanomaterials that are either from renewable sources or we're addressing in issues mm-hmm. in energy storage. So we're making materials that can be used in batteries. And I'm just curious, do these count as green chemistry to you? Or what is the, you know, within chemistry, what, how big is green chemistry? Yeah, so, uh, so a couple things to address there. So one of the reasons I don't like to think of it as a subdiscipline is my fear is that the non-green chemists, if you will, um, are going to be saying, well, you know, green chemistry, that's what those people do over there. And so then if you're an organic chemist or a physical chemist or an analytical chemist, um, you know, you don't have to worry about green chemistry because that's somebody else's responsibility. So that's why I view it more as an overarching approach. And so green chemistry, you know, there there is a definition, sort of a working definition that a lot of people use that was... Um, articulated by Paul Anastas and John Warner back about 20 years ago, and that is the design of chemical products and processes that reduce or eliminate the use and generation of hazardous substances. So that's fairly broad. And so whether you're working in in nanotechnology or biochemistry, whenever you're looking at your reactions and trying to identify where you can do those substitutions, they're going to make it safer um, for both human health and the environment, then you're doing green chemistry. Great. 
Yeah, I really like the idea is like green chemistry is an opportunity for all scientists yes. to be able to be a part of. So can you share some things that scientists can do every day to start to think about to implement more green chemistry practices or any specific resources that you think are helpful? Sure. So the uh, Green Chemistry Institute has a number of resources and we have some industry roundtables, one of which is the pharmaceutical roundtable, and they've developed a number of tools um, such as reagent guides and solvent selection guides. Um, so if you go to the acs.org, uh, Green Chemistry Institute, you can find uh, some of these resources. But a number of other groups also have them, particularly the uh, EPA has developed some resources that can be utilized as well. I think one of the key things is, um, you know, thinking back to when I was in the lab, you know, you, you do your research, you find a published procedure, and then we just tend to kind of blindly follow that procedure because it's published and we assume it works. But part of it is, I think, adding that layer of critical thinking. When you're looking at a procedure that you're going to be using, you know, looking at solvents, again, because they are the biggest source of waste in the pharmaceutical industry. Do you have to run it in dichloromethane because that's what the procedure said? Or can you substitute another solvent for that? Um, looking at the reaction times in terms of how much energy you're going to be using, you know, can you get the same result um, at a lower temperature or running it um, at room temperature? I'm thinking about the workup. That's one, again, a very big source of waste in a lot of reactions is the type of uh, workup you're using, whether it's um, you know, column chromatography, uh, if you're doing a distillation, um, just sort of thinking critically about what you're doing and what some of the alternatives might be to how it's traditionally been done. And we've talked a lot about the pharmaceutical industry, mm -hmm. but can you talk about other areas where there can be greater improvements in green chemistry that would really be impactful? Yeah, and there have been, I tend to bias myself towards the pharmaceutical industry because I'm an organic chemist. <laughs> I like those molecules. <laughs> um, but there are many other examples um, with consumer goods, for example, and I think that's what a lot of people are sort of looking for. <laughs> for example, there have been um, efforts to improve things like uh, paints, where they are using fewer volatile organic compounds, um, at the same time providing the, the look and feel that people are looking for on their walls. Um, there are efforts to take electronics um, and separate out the uh, the metals that are in there, especially the very rare and expensive ones, to pull those out of electronic devices rather than having them all end up in the landfill. There are also have been some new technologies in terms of dyeing clothes um, and fabrics um, that are using less hazardous materials to get the again the same you know people want their vibrant colors but in a way that's not using for example heavy metals so there's a lot of examples across um, multiple sectors and particularly with a lot of the consumer products that we use because that's where so much of the manufacturing um, is going into um, is, is producing the consumer goods that we all have become so fond of. <laughs> You've mentioned a couple times that you worked at the EPA. So mm -hmm. Just on a different note, can you tell us sure. a little bit about your experiences there? Sure. So at EPA, I was there as a AAAS fellow. So I wasn't a, a government employee, but I was essentially on loan to EPA, um, which was supposed to be a one-year fellowship that sort of morphed into <laughs> three. And so because I, the green chemistry program was fairly new there, a lot of what I did was to work with the American Chemical Society, which ultimately got me 
quit my job, by the way, on developing educational resources because there was nothing out there when green chemistry was a brand new idea. When was this? This was back in uh, 1998 to 2001 is when I was at EPA. Um, and you know, the term green chemistry uh, surfaced in the uh, n uh, 90s, so it was it was still a very new concept. The first uh, green chemistry challenge awards given out by EPA were in 1996, so green chemistry was really still in its infancy. And so a lot of what I did was um, helping develop those educational materials and just going out and giving presentations on green chemistry to various groups because it was a concept that EPA was promoting. It was really derived from the Pollution Prevention Act of 1990, and that act was really a, a, a shift in how we were really approaching pollution. There was this mindset that pollution was just part of the natural course of doing business and you were simply going to treat it or clean it up when you were done. The Pollution Prevention Act shifted that and said, well, let's look at where we're starting and is there a way to prevent pollution in the first place? And so it was really a paradigm shift um, at EPA and so a lot of it was just information and awareness. But also other things I did, we were trying to get some publications out, so worked on a book I've published, which is Designing Safer Polymers, uh, based on some of the information that was coming in from polymer manufacturers to EPA. So a lot of it was really sort of communication and outreach around uh, green chemistry and establishing relationships with other organizations that had an interest in green chemistry. Great. Um, and then finally, if you weren't a chemist, what would your dream job be, other dream job be, outside of chemistry? <laughs> oh my, probably something I'm qualified to do. <laughs> it could be something wild. <laughs> yeah, despite my uh, four foot 11 stature. I used to love playing basketball. <laughs> but um, it, otherwise, I would probably be a writer. I do enjoy writing uh, a lot. Um, most of what I write is more like technical and reports now. But I still really enjoy uh, writing. Um, I, ha I do a lot of editing in my job, and mm -hmm. certain things drive me crazy. <laughs> Lack of an Oxford comma. But yeah, that's probably what I would be doing if I weren't doing this. I, s I will say I still, um, you know, as a faculty member for nine years, I, I miss being in the classroom. I really loved teaching. But I can't complain about how my career has turned out. I've been very fortunate. Do you have anything particularly specific about energy or nanoparticles that you want to share? I don't because it's not my field yeah. of, of expertise, so, um, you know, yeah. I, read, I read Prey years ago and I'm like, dear God. <laughs> 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 yeah, that was fascinating. Um, you know, it, I think with nano, but any new technology, we just need to be thinking about um, unintended consequences. I gave the example yesterday of CFCs terrific replacement as refrigerants, but we didn't know the damage they were going to do to the uh, the ozone layer. Um, and so you, you have to, even though it's not apparent now, and there's no way to prove anything is perfectly safe, but the more we learn, the more we can identify where the problem areas might be. And that's why that understanding of chemistry is so essential, because certain types of features in a molecule are prone to certain behaviors. They are predictable. And so if it's a certain type of structure, you might be able to anticipate that it might be an endocrine disruptor or it might contribute to uh, climate change. So just with you know nano, I know it's not new anymore, but there's still a lot of new materials being developed and you know testing them as thoroughly as we can Absolutely. is beneficial. Yeah. 
you summed that up very nicely. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah thank you. I've thank never you. done a podcast before. <laughs> And that's it for this episode of the Sustainable Nano Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you again to Dr. Mary Kirchhoff for talking with us for this episode and to Stephanie Mitchell and Peter Clement for conducting the interview. Our music is by PC3 and Dexter Britton, and this episode was edited by Alicia McGeechee. Thank you, as always, to the National Science Foundation for funding the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which produces this podcast. Our usual disclaimer, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the National Science Foundation. Want more Sustainable Nano? You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or listen to any of our episodes at podcast.sustainable-nano.com. We also have a blog with over 250 posts, mostly written by students in the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which you can find at sustainable-nano.com. And you can reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at sustainablenano, all one word. We'd love to hear from you. And now for the big reveal you've been waiting for. Thank you again to everyone who sent in suggestions for our new podcast sign-off, and... I couldn't decide. I might end up rotating through several. You'll just have to keep listening to find out. Thank you for listening to Sustainable Nano. And remember, especially around the holidays, it's important to appreciate the small things in life. <laughs>